0: Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 224, The Siege of Leningrad, Part 3. Last time, we talked about the events that led up to the siege of the city founded by Peter the Great. Today, we continue the story as all roads in and out of Leningrad have now been sealed shut. The only ways to get through the blockade are by air and barge. The German Luftwaffe, while not completely controlling the air, are still a formidable obstacle for both air travel and travel by boat on Lake Lagoda, north of the city. The city of Leningrad was surrounded by Finnish troops to the northwest and German troops to the northeast and south. Hitler demanded that the army of Finland continue to fight their way into the city, but their commanders were satisfied with keeping their positions where they were avoiding any fighting that might endanger their men. While this infuriated the Nazi leaders, they could do nothing as they needed their allies, even if they didn't do anything else. In his book, The 900 Days, The Siege of Leningrad, author Harrison Salisbury says this about the situation in the North. Quote, The commanders of Leningrad's defenses treated the Northern Front, that with Finland, like a savings bank. From almost the beginning of the war, they systematically transferred troops and material from the north to feed into the bleeding fronts on Leningrad's South, Southwest, and Southeast. He further goes on to write, quote, But the northern front was not an inexhaustible reservoir of manpower. Marshal Voroshilov and zhdanov could rob Peter to pay Paul. But sooner or later, there was going to be a serious overdraft. There is little debate that had the Finnish troops moved forward and tried to penetrate the northern defenses, Leningrad would have fallen in 1941. They had an army twice the size of the forces facing them, were outgunned 1.2 to 1, and the Finnish Air Force had a 2.2 to 1 advantage over their Soviet counterparts. On July 31st, the Finnish army made one last attempt to break through the Soviet defenses, hoping to split the 23rd army in two. The fighting over the next few weeks was brutal and costly. By the middle of August, the Finnish army was within 20 miles of the northern border of Leningrad. By the end of the month, the Finns were on the doorstep on the suburbs. The goal of the Soviet army at this time was to hold the town of Belostrov, Three times the year, Soviets were thrown out, and three times, they retook it. As the retreating Soviet troops began to fall into Leningrad, their defensive positions tightened. While the loss of life was staggering, the number of men, women, and sometimes children were greater per foot along the new borders. By September 24th, with General Kirill Meretskov taking over the 7th Army and later the Volkov Front, the line stabilized and remained so until the Soviet counteroffensive began in 1944. Meretskov had only recently been released from prison, where he was taken in late June after the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. Hitler's belief that the combined forces of the Finnish army and Wehrmacht joining together on the Karelian Peninsula by October 1941 was dashed. He firmly believed that victory over Leningrad would pave the way for their armies to head south toward Moscow and end the war. While the siege of Leningrad was to last almost three more years, the quick victory eluded the Germans. The toll on the citizens of the grand city was about to get ugly. Going back in time, remember that last episode, we mentioned that shlisselburg had fallen. It was located at the head of the Neva River on Lake Lagoda, 35 kilometers or 22 miles east of Leningrad. Stalin by now was furious with the way the defense of Leningrad was going. So on September 9th, the day after the city was surrounded, he decided that Voroshilov was incompetent and even thought of executing him based on his ineptitude. The man who would be his replacement was 43-year-old General Georgi Zhukov. The three weeks at autumn that Zhukov took control of the army would add to his growing legend. The Germans would be held back due to Zhukov and his two lieutenants, Generals Mikhail Kosin and Ivan Fedulensky. Zhukov's flight into Leningrad was dicey as two Messerschmitts almost shot his plane down. Georgi headed over to the meeting of Leningrad's military council, which was beset with doom and gloom. They were discussing destroying the city's utilities and factories in anticipation of the city being taken. Zhukov described his meeting this way, quote, After a brief conference, we decided to adjourn the meeting and declare that for the time being, no measures were to be taken. We would defend Leningrad to the last man. Morale within the rank and file of the Soviet army was at an all-time low. Zhukov and his team would turn that around quickly. Even with his steady leadership, things were still touch and go. The troops knew that if they abandoned their positions, or showed any cowardice in the face of enemy fire, they would be shot by their own comrades. The combat order of September 17, 1941, made it very clear. No retreat. Quote, One, Considering the exceptional importance of the Pulkova-Kolpino line, the military council of the Leningrad Front announces to all commanders and political and line cadres defending the designated line that any commander, politic, or soldier who abandons the line without written order from the army group or army military council will be shot immediately. 2. Announce the order to command and political cadres upon receipt. Disseminate widely among the rank and file. Stalin would add to the order by telling the troops that they should fire upon any Soviet citizens who approached the defensive lines from the German side. The horror of German occupation of the towns surrounding Leningrad would begin to take hold, especially among the small Jewish population. Within the first few weeks, 3,600 Jews were murdered. In October, an order that all Jews in the town of Pushkin outside Leningrad, were to present themselves for, quote-unquote, registration. All of the hundreds of them were imprisoned, starved, then executed. The majority were women, children, and the elderly. The southern line had finally held on September 24th, with the Germans led by von Lieb only 15 kilometers, or 9.3 miles, away from the Hermitage. Both sides were exhausted, having suffered terrible casualty counts. The German Army Group North had lost 190,000 men who were killed or wounded, losing 500 artillery pieces and 700 tanks. The Soviet losses were even more horrific. 214,078 men died or were captured in the fighting, with 130,848 wounded. This represented two-thirds of the original troop numbers. In addition, 4,000 tanks were destroyed, along with 5,400 artillery pieces and 2,700 aircraft. Leningrad had always been Hitler's first and foremost important target, with Moscow actually being third behind eastern Ukraine. On September 5th, things changed. He ordered that General Hopner's Panzer Group 4 be moved to the Moscow front if Leningrad was not taken by the 15th. It is this decision, along with the Finnish reluctance to push harder from the north, that cost the Germans any chance to capture the city. As Anna Reid wrote, about this moment in her book, which I highly recommend if you want to go deeper into the Siege of Leningrad, and her book's entitled Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, 1941-44. Quote, in retrospect, it was at the point at which Germany missed her best chance of taking Leningrad. Never again, despite more than two years of near-continuous fighting, did Army Group North amass the mobility and firepower for a full-scale frontal assault on the city. Hitler had dreaded what the Siege of Leningrad had become, a mirror of the horrors of trench warfare that he had endured during World War I. The same scenarios of repeated offensive maneuvers, met with defensive resistance, would be tried over and over. Many, with the same results of the previous global war, Massive losses of lives. General Yodel then ordered the city of Leningrad was to be worn down and destroyed through the use of aerial bombardment and artillery fire. Any civilian who came within a range of German forces was to be shot immediately. A surrender was now off the table. Complete annihilation was the only option remaining. The aerial bombing was devastating, especially when the Germans used incendiary bombs. They focused on supplies like food, oil, and warehouses. The artillery shells that pounded Leningrad did an enormous amount of damage as well. It unnerved people, and as Anna Reid puts it, quote, also hit was the city zoo next to the Peter and Paul Fortress. A staff member, a child, and 70 animals were killed, including the zebra, the zoo's famous elephant, Betty, who had come to Petersburg from Hamburg six years before the revolution. The monkeys were so traumatized, a zoologist noted, that for a few days afterwards, they sat silently in a sort of stupor, not even reacting to the shells falling all around. Imagine... Zoo animals were even suffering. But what is mind-numbing is that the bombing lasted for the entirety of the siege. There were breaks, mostly in the bitter cold winters, which grounded the planes and made the artillery freeze as well. Still, when we look at the overall fatality numbers, the bombing only accounted for a small percentage, about 2% of the total. An estimated 17,000 civilians died, with another 33,000 wounded because of the bombings. What is uncounted is the number of people whose nerves were shot because of the lack of sleep due to the constant gunfire. And it's truly unfathomable to imagine what these poor people went through. It has been estimated that 69,000 incendiary and 4,250 high-explosive bombs hit Leningrad. Still, it was nowhere near the amount that hit London during the war, but Leningrad is a far smaller city in size. And unfortunately, this is some of what is going on in Ukraine at present time. But the city morgue was a place of extreme emotions, as you might well guess. As the chief pathologist at inbers Eresman Hospital, Professor Vladimir Garshan wrote, quote, Those hours and days in the mortuary after raids, I can never forget. Not the corpses. I saw lots in my decades of work. But the relatives. To a certain extent, I was accustomed to taking on part of their burden of grief and horror. But there, it went beyond all limits. By evening, your soul was paralyzed. I would catch myself wearing the same sympathetic expression and using the same formulaic words. You were left feeling completely empty. One noticeable difference between the bombings of Moscow and London and Leningrad was that the first two cities had extensive underground train systems where the people could hide from the bombs. Leningrad had no such underground. Because it was built on a swamp, there was no way to dig deep into the ground. It was simply too wet. The only places to hide would be stairwells, boiler rooms, and the trenches dug in the parks and public places. Olga Bergoltz wrote about her feelings when the bombings were nearby. Quote, Everyone thinks, this one's for me, and dies in advance. You die, it passes, but a minute later it comes again, whistles again, and you die, are resurrected, sigh with relief, only to die again over and over. How long will it last? Kill me all at once, not bit by bit, several times a day. Between September 4th and December 31st, Leningrad was bombed a total of 272 times by heavy artillery, sometimes for 18 straight hours. Most of the devastation was to the southern side of the city, closest to the German lines. This, of course, led to a level of discontent among a number of the inhabitants toward the communist regime in Moscow. Swastikas were painted on walls throughout the city. It was a dangerous thing to do, though. If you were caught, you were shot on the spot. But at this point, many believed they would die anyway. Stalin gave serious thought to abandoning Leningrad outright, as Moscow was now in danger. Operation Typhoon was the code name for the destruction of Moscow. Eight hundred thousand German soldiers and over a thousand tanks were pointed at the Soviet capital, and they were making headway. Stalin recalled Zhukov on October sixth to lead the defense of the city. Of the eight hundred thousand men who were in place to defend the center of the country, and you got to see this number: only ninety thousand were left. After only six weeks of fighting, we're talking 710,000 casualties on the Russian side. During the months following the encirclement of Leningrad, munitions were being pumped out of their remaining factories. The slogan of the day, and the Soviets were certainly fond of their slogans, was, quote, everything for the front. If they had been truly honest, it would have actually read, everything from Moscow. As Reed puts it, stocks of coal and peat, which could have saved homes from freezing, were used to power production of shells and mines, and transport capacity that would have been used to import food was given over to powder and explosives, which went into munitions that were immediately re-exported to the capital. Now, you must be wondering, wait a minute, Didn't you say that the city was sealed off by the Germans? Yes, it was. But there were ways to sneak things in and out of the city via Lake Lagoda. But had the Soviet leadership not purged all those brilliant generals and other higher-ups in the military during the great purge of 1936-38, to they might not have sent all of the weaponry that Leningrad had produced to Moscow. The German line around the former capital was only 10 miles thick. Had they created a secure land route out of the city, not only could they have saved hundreds of thousands of people from starvation, but they likely could also have produced far more munitions for the war effort. I just want you to think about this. If you were 50 years old in 1941, basically born in 1891, You would have lived through three major famines, as Anna Reid pointed out. Quote, the first of 1891 to 92, when Trout hit the Volga Steppe, the second of 1921 to 22, caused by grain requisitioning and the post-revolutionary Civil War, and the third of 1932 to 33, when the Bolsheviks violently collectivized peasant farms condemning to death perhaps 7 million people. Think of that, three major famines if you were 50 years old in that year. Now, you would think that the Soviet authorities would have understood how to deal with famine given their history. But no, they were woefully underprepared. With 2.8 million civilians and 500,000 soldiers caught in the trap, Dmitry Pavlov, a junior trade commissar, was flown into Leningrad to determine the amount of food that was available. He was shocked to find that there was only one month's worth of edible foodstuffs. The incompetence of the Soviet officials cannot be understated. As Anastas Mikoyan puts it, after ordering grain to be shipped into the city any way possible, quote, Assuming that the Leningraders would be only too happy with this decision, I did not consult them in advance. Even Stalin only learned of it when he got a telephone call from Zhdanov. He told him that the Leningrad warehouses were packed as full as they could hold and insisted that no foodstuffs over and above those already designated be dispatched to them. To top it off, the Soviet authorities never thought to distribute food to smaller distribution centers to avoid losing large amounts of food to the incendiary bombs and artillery. When the body of warehouse burned to the ground, thousands of tons of food was lost. Potatoes were one of the most important crops that could be grown within the city. An order was given that only 15 kilograms of potatoes could be held each month by any one person, with the remainder having to be surrendered to the authorities. Anyone caught hoarding would be shot. Flour, another important need, was reduced from 2,000 tons a day to 880 for the entire town by November. The new rationing system put into place was, as Reed puts it, quote, operating similarly to the gulags. Though articulated as giving to each according to his needs, in practice, it tended to preserve the lives of those vital to the city's defense, soldiers and industrial workers, and condemning office workers old people, the unemployed, and children to death. She writes further that per day, quote, 500 grams of bread for manual workers, 300 grams for office workers, 250 for dependents, and 300 for children. By late November, the rations were cut even further. Workers received 250 grams of bread with everyone else receiving 125. That is the equivalent to three thin slices of bread per day. Children were even worse off because of the incompetence of the Soviet authorities. A child of 11 would receive the same amount of food as a one-year-old. If you were an essential worker, you were prohibited from taking food home. Some businesses allowed people to smuggle food to their families, Others searched you before allowing you to leave. Of course, when you put into place rules like this, the system inevitably turns to corruption. The worst offenders were Communist Party members. The higher up you were, the more food you received. If you were a non party member and you were found trying to cheat the system, your penalties would be severe. If you were a loyal party member, no one would say a word. As people began to die from starvation and the bombings, their bodies would be hidden so as not to lose their ration cards, which were given out each month. The pangs of hunger changed the people of Leningrad. As Yelena Skarbina wrote of the conditions, quote, People turn into animals before our eyes. Who would have thought that Irina, always a quiet, lovely woman, would be capable of beating her husband, who she always adored. And for what? Because he wants to eat all the time and can never get enough? He just waits for her to bring something home and throws himself on the food. The grisliest sight in our apartment is the korakin family. He, back from exile and emaciated by years in prison, is already beginning to bloat. It's simply horrible. Of his wife's former love, there is little left. She is constantly irritated and argumentative. Their children cry and beg for food, but all they get is beatings. However, the Korakans are no exception. Hunger has changed almost everyone. To add misery to the inhabitants of Leningrad, winter came early. By December, the first signs of people dying of starvation began. Fuel to keep the power stations running was low, causing intermittent power outages. There was less and less fuel to heat homes, adding to the deplorable conditions. People were resorting to eating anything and everything, including their beloved pets. Death by starvation, whereas the Soviet authorities tried to whitewash it by calling it food difficulties, was rising each month. In October, 6,199 people died. By December, the number rose to 53,000. Men made up the majority of the deaths early on, amounting to 71% of the total. The elderly were about 27%, with babies being 14% of the death toll. I'm going to end today's somber episode with this from Dmitri. Likhachev, a witness to what was happening in Leningrad, I think that real life is hunger, and the rest, mirage. In the time of famine, people revealed themselves, stripped themselves of all trumpery. Some turned out to be marvelous, incomparable heroes, others, scoundrels, villains, murderers, cannibals. There were no half measures. Everything was real. The heavens were unfurled, and then God was seen. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we finish the series with the liberation of the people of Leningrad from the 900-day siege. And I have to warn you that some of the quotes and the stories that I'm going to read next episode are really heart-wrenching, even after they were freed. So until then, Das vidyanie. I spasibo bol'shoye.